Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name's Edwin Davis, and joining me this week through the Miracle of Satellite Technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi Emily, how's it going? Oh, it's going. It's going. Mm-hmm. How are you, Ed? Good. Uh, I feel like this episode is going to largely be us talking about things that make us feel old. <laughs> Big turn. And in, in that spirit, I got one of the weirder things that made me feel old in the time since we last spoke which was a couple of weeks ago at this point i was out walking as i want to do particularly with you know omicron going on and everything just thinking okay i don't really want to go to a gym now so i'll just you know kind of like walk around the neighborhood where i live and as i was walking around and you know had headphones in and everything a group of i'm presuming gay teens just kept shouting daddy at me <laughs> Yeah, so that was weird. <laughs> I mean, of all the things that have been shouted at me in the street by strangers, and it's a long list, um, that's one of the more flattering. But I was that was, it was definitely like, like I was definitely thinking like, man, that's made me feel really. <laughs> I yearn for that level of approval from queer teens. My word! <laughs> Congratulations. Mm, yeah, big day. Big day. <laughs> So we'll go on to the news for this week, and it's a very quiet week. It kind of doesn't feel like a huge amount of film and TV news is, is going on, but there are a few things that we thought we would talk about, and I think the one that we have to talk about, because we've talked about the show quite a few times over the course of um, the last, last several years, is the news that HBO is interested in bringing back Six Feet Under, the Alan Bald created drama about a family running a funeral home, which we did a whole episode on um, several months ago now for its uh, 20th anniversary. And I think you and I probably fall generally in the consensus on this of kind of bemusement. Mm-hmm. Please. It seems to be the only way to approach it. Please, please leave it alone. Please leave it alone. Um, I think I've made no secret of the fact that this show is basically my Bible. Um, mm-hmm. And for someone to say, "Oh, there's a New Testament," be like, um, <laughs> "No, I think I think we covered it all." The fact that there is such a dearth of any kind of risk taking in Hollywood mm-hmm. that the show that I think even people who've never seen it will be aware of it as having one of the best, most satisfying and yet open and overwhelmingly perfect endings to a series ever. Mm. So the fact that they're like, instead of taking any gamble on an original idea or adapt something else, I mean, HBO Max current, which I assume is what this would kind of go out on, is already... You know, we've got Station Eleven coming up, and that looks epic and brilliant. And there's something really exciting about, you know, it's kind of a safe bet, though. You know, like a really fantastically popular book, the budget and the talent to really give it a visual 
tone that that and, and the sense of scale that it deserves. I actually never finished Station Eleven, but I found the, the opening chapter so affecting that I just I couldn't continue with the book. So I'm excited to to kind of watch it once it finally gets to these shores. And I just look. This is spoilers for I'm just like that ahead. Look, I I will, I will be a Sex in the City apologist. Uh, to the day I die and I am really digging and just like that it's immensely flawed and that's the point I think the juxtaposition of these women in the current day being in their 50s struggling to catch up with the culture that they ushered in through being themselves and being honest in the 90s whilst they, they were in their 30s is brilliant to me I think it's really awkward and clumsily done and that's why it's good <laughs> you know it's um and its depiction of grief particularly the second episode is one of the best depictions of grief in a funeral i've ever seen on tv and that's saying something that is a reboot that makes sense because the ending of the tv show was brilliant then the films came along and we're all just ignoring that the films ever happened. They're not <laughs> canon, right? It's which is this is what we need. Because mm, that's sex in the city legends. <laughs> exactly. Like they fucked it and now and now they're coming back and they're unfucking it. And I really appreciate it. Because it's trying to get back to the spirit of that final episode. And it is interesting. Like, where else are you gonna see groups of women in their fifties on TV? I find it really heartening to see this level of friendship carried on like it feels sorry carried on was not a pun but it sounded like one. <laughs> and it's similar to twin peaks the return for me because it's like these are all the same people and to actually see people particularly women age is like so welcome and it shouldn't be as rare as it is but it is i can't i cannot fathom how this will work for six feet under because like i don't think anything is gonna I can't think of a character that we can pick up with at a time in their life because we, we've already done... Like, give give Alan Ball, like, free reign. Let him do something else. Like, he... Like, the, the man came up with American Beauty, Six Feet Under, and True Blood. Like, he's good for it. He can come up with different stuff. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm exactly the same mind. As much as I love... The original series and yeah like part of me is kind of like oh it would be nice to kind of like check in with those characters again like there's the original run just did such a, a thorough job of closing the book <laughs> on on those characters you know showing us how every single one of them would die <laughs> and i don't know like it's not that you couldn't tell interesting stories about them by picking up them all you know 15 16 years later or whatever it still just kind of leaves you thinking, like, what would be the point? What what stories from, you know, that interregnum period between where we last saw them alive and where we know they all end up, what, you know, could they could they tell us? And, yeah, I'm not, I'm really not sure that there would be much there for them. I mean, I would like to be proven wrong, of course. It'd be great if it came back and it was an absolute triumph. But, I don't know, of, like, all of the various... Things that HBO have revived, you know, the, obviously there was The Sopranos um, with the Many Saints of Newark and then whatever the next 
thing they do in that universe is um and you know and all that like this absolutely feels like the most wrong-headed and maybe uh reflective of a stagnation there in, in sort of the years since um the whole warner media thing happened like even as they are kind of like producing new and exciting original stuff like the arse and the praises of how to with john wilson till the cows come home mm-hmm. um but yeah that, that they are looking around thinking what old property can we kind of like dust off and bring back isn't like terribly encouraging for how the people in charge of that that company are trying to run things yep 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 and then uh, before we go on to the main topic there were a couple of deaths that we wanted to note first up uh, Anne Rice passed away at 80 of course prolific author mainly known for her vampire fiction particularly for the series of books about the vampire Lestat including Interview for the Vampire which was turned into a very entertaining film from the early 90s directed by Neil Jordan um, which uh, of course you know was one of the first really high profile roles of potential soon-to-be Oscar winner Kirsten Dunst and also you know like various other of her books were turned into into movies over the years including um, Queen of the Damned with Aaliyah um, just a yeah, a very prolific author, a very prickly author by all accounts in terms of her relationship to um, fan fiction around her work, but certainly someone who I think, you know, legitimately did alter in a major way the kind of like the popular image of vampires in fiction. Um, fittingly, because we were just talking about like True Blood, like it's hard to imagine so much of the vampire fiction of the last like decade or so you know, starting with Twilight going onwards, not existing if Anne Rice hadn't, you know, really brought the idea of the sexy, doomed romantic vampire fully into the mainstream again. Completely. And also, let's not forget, trans ally and just all-round incredible cultural figure. Uh, And then also, um, Bell Hooks passed away. Bell Hooks, a kind of critic activist, critical thinker, writer just all around kind of like brilliant uh hugely influential um on a whole generation of people when it comes to kind of consideration of media feminism just like kind kind of an incalculable influence i think on a lot of people who take art and its place in society seriously completely i was devastated at the news and i wouldn't even consider myself someone who was as intimately and directly affected by bell hooks because what she did for um women and queer people of color in particular Mm. is is phenomenal like she saved lives and i think the thing about bell hooks as well is that as as a critic and in critical theory she engaged more in critique which was like investigation and uh she kind of had a rallying cry to always hold on to how to make things better whilst also accepting the reality of where we live and she could not be more relevant uh, and and will remain relevant I think forever and, and sort of because she was so ahead of her time and she pulled people through time and I'm just yeah it it's staggering and the way that she centers love as a as a crucial part of human practice uh, never fails to 
amaze and soothe me um you know because i think so often critical theory feels like quite overtly intellectual or um exclusionary or obtuse whereas mm. i think bell always had a way of cutting to the quick and using it as a space that was just as valid and appropriate to hold emotion and feeling and and for perfectly expressing how important that was so yeah a devastating loss but incredibly fortunate to be alive at the same time as her absolutely so we'll go on to our main topic for this week this is uh, this is basically our christmas episode because this will be the last episode that we put out before <laughs> big the big day itself um but it's also uh kind of marking a big anniversary because you know this year peter jackson made his long movie about the beatles get, get back but 20 years ago almost to the day we all got introduced to his first story about four lads who had to go on a journey before, before splitting, splitting up. up. <laughs> of, of course, course <laughs> I'm talking of The Lord of the Rings, the first film of which The Fellowship of the Ring came out on December the 19th, 2001, so almost 20 years ago today. Um, Gandalf taught the band to play. So we thought we would talk about that because I know that you and I are both kind of big fans of those movies and they are so still like very seismic things to have happened in sort of movie culture of the last 20 years and yeah they're also just really good movies <laughs> and um re-watching them for this just reminds me of like how much i loved them when they came out and how well they they hold up um but uh, before we get into all that emily what's your kind of like what was your relationship to lord of the rings before seeing the movies Phenomenal comparison and introduction, <laughs> by the way. You know what? The movies were my introduction. I think mm -hmm. being 11 years old and having just started secondary school, I cannot emphasise how much of a formative imprint these films made on me. Because mm -hmm. I think, and I think they did for everyone in our generation, you know, Millennials and Lord of the Rings are incredibly tight-knit, but... I think there's something about that being the Christmas film of the end of the first um, kind of term of my secondary school, which made a huge, it's, it's, it's such a memory, like a memory palace for me. And I actually couldn't bring myself to rewatch them in this episode um, because the nostalgia was almost too painful. One of these days I will, and I know this is going to sound nuts to some people, but they were our Star Wars, right? Like, mm -hmm. there was this sense of it's going to be a trilogy, and the sense of, oh, it's going to be next year, and the year after that, and kind of the growth between 11, 12, 12, 13, and 13, 14 is wild. But, but at 14, I was still as invested. You know, it wasn't like, oh, it's a stupid kids movie. I was just as, if not even more invested by the end of it. And I could feel my emotions and development kind of track alongside. And I think there was something quite conscious about that in the making of it, because you reminded me just before we started recording, Ed, that they were all filmed at the same time. But the fact that they came yeah. out in that release and that the story does develop and things become um, further out of reach. Like the first film has actually quite 
a simple, straightforward goodies, baddies, and then loss and, and everything kind of oh, develops and intensifies. Um, so watching um, Return of the King, I didn't mind that there were that many endings. I needed all the endings I could get. It was a big, it was a big victory lap. So I came to read the books. It became like, it was a frenzy. It was an all out frenzy in my school, I remember. And it was something that wasn't necessarily deemed nerdy because <clears throat> the prowess of Hollywood and the sheer level of marketing. It was the big it was the biggest film in the world at that point. And everyone was interested in it. And if you were a girl, you were either Team Aragorn or Team Legolas. Um <clears throat> You know, I went to see it. It was one of the first films I went to see several times when it was on. Um, I think because it was like you'd, you'd go, I think it was the first, the last weekend before we broke up for Christmas holidays. And then it was like, well, we're just going to go and see Lord of the Rings every weekend, aren't we? Until <laughs> it gets taken away from us. Um, and then I read all of the books. I even tried to read The Silmarillion. Um, <laughs> but my love for Aragorn uh, did not go as deep to unpick how deeply um un un teenager eyes <laughs> friendly uh that prose was to me but the films opened it all up to me the films opened me up to tolkien they opened me up to um how wide and expansive that whole franchise was and this was before the matrix and the animatrix and everything really started to unfurl like it was this ready made universe because it wasn't just the films it was the books and it wasn't just the books it was all of these other things it was the fact that the film the films sorry brought together but particularly the fellowship it was like oh my god this is something that's been happening for generations before us as well mm. and it just kind of tapped that huge cross-generational interest and I think that was probably the longest film I'd seen uh, duration wise in the cinema at that point. And when it came to the end, I was like, no, no, no more. <laughs> um, and then it was only when I read the books that I appreciated how incredible the adaptation was and the writing mm. between um, Peter Jackson and Fran Walsh, like, Inc like really good choices made because I remember some cries of people being like but what about Tom Bombadil and I always feel like <laughs> I feel like we should you know in the same sort of uh, tradition as the Bechdel test I think the Bombadil test is like the thing that it really doesn't need to go in <laughs> go in the final cut you know a fan favorite uh yeah, so sorry, I realise it's just sort of scratching the surface, but like, yeah, kind of a big deal for me, Ed. Sorry, <laughs> back to you, because um, you, it would have come to you so if you because uh, I was just about to start sort of the full flush of my teens, whereas you were more mid-teen, weren't you, when it came out? Yeah, I was fifth. I would have been fifteen, uh, and just starting my GCSEs. Uh huh. I think yeah, first yeah. Oh, oh no, sorry, second year of GCSEs. Um, and just started that when it came out, uh, and nine eleven had just happened. <laughs> a lot was going on. <laughs> it was a busy time, but yes, um, I had read Lord of the Rings the summer before the movies came out. Um, on a family vacation, I think we went on a cruise around the Mediterranean, 
and there truly is nothing more on brand with me at 15 years old than me being on a holiday in the sun and being right right i'm gonna read this 1000 page book about hobbits yeah so i did like that i had like that one read of the book's kind of like um base of knowledge and was just like really excited to see where it went because i got really caught up in it you know i was a fan of fantasy literature in general and just like just got so captivated by the books and then going to see the movie i was just like so blown away with how complete it all felt how much it really did feel as if you were going into this magical world that was so well realized and you're right about the, the first one is so straightforward and lean which is why like on this reviewing rewatch like um it uh, pipped the two towers to be my favorite of the three because i think there is such a cleanness to the whole you know you're introduced to all the characters you know kind of like in a way that feels perfectly paced and laid out the fellowship kind of coming together is this big triumphant moment halfway through and then the kind of like dissolution and everyone going their separate ways kind of feels like a perfect ending and sets you up for the rest of the story um but yeah i was just like so blown away by it in terms of the the scope of it all the way in which again you know how well it realized all of the characters from the books and how it really felt as if you were tumbling into this world that had been so fully created for you and then having read the book you know i was able to appreciate yeah tom bombadil don't really need him he can, <laughs> he, he can be left on the cutting room floor um and there but you know and, and you know appreciating little things like the sackville baggins is like getting a mention just thinking aha yes they're awful people um just terrible terrible relatives of course he would want to hide from them um but also, you know, the effects of it all were just, like, so mind-blowing. Even, you know, sort of two years after The Matrix coming out, which had really been kind of, like, a huge moment for for me and, like, everyone I knew. Like, that was a movie that was just, like, really mind-blowing. Like, this felt like... Of a scale that you just hadn't seen in modern blockbusters for a while. Like, the only thing comparable to it was, you know, Titanic. But even then, like, Titanic was, re- was you know, recreating a real boat and, and a, a real event that happened, whereas this, you know, having to pull together this rich, detailed world of all these different cultures and make them all feel distinctive and make it feel, like, truly lived in felt like such a huge accomplishment. And, you know, it was very much a... It very much became just an obsession with me and all of my friends, like, even people who weren't into fantasy like everyone just really loved Lord of the Rings, loved the Fellowship and then the following year when, both when Two Towers came out but also when the extended edition of the uh, Fellowship came out like it felt like that obsession became like inflamed even more because you you know you had oh my god this movie that we all loved there's more of it but also there's 12 hours of people just talking about how they made it and I, I really feel I think Lindsay Ellis mentioned this like in her video when she talked about the Hobbit trilogy how the extended edition of Lord of the Rings and the box set and everything that was put on there was like a major inflection point for her wanting to kind of like go to film school and learn about how films are made and I feel like for everyone I knew everyone had the extended edition and everyone watched those extras because everyone just found the process of it all and the tactility of it all just so engrossing to kind of dig into 
completely. A couple of points there that you excellently brought up. Number one, even people who weren't into fantasy were into it. And I think it's because this was similar to Star Wars, and I know I keep making comparisons, but I do think it's the closest big franchise that was kind of contained and didn't become ubiquitous. It, You know, some kind of fantasy um, adaptations were then tried, but it wasn't the same level as, let's not forget, Spider-Man, which came out the same year. And then that, the success of that kicking off the um, <laughs> the superhero milieu that we now are um, drowning in today. But I think the power of it was that it didn't feel like fantasy did before. In the same way as Star Wars, it was very character-driven and it was accessible. <clears throat> like, the funny thing is, is that you didn't have to have read Lord of the Rings to be into it. Like, it, it managed to be accessible and enjoyable as a film like it took you along and said you don't have to know anything about this like we love it and we'll we'll tell you so the film embraced its own language because i think a lot of people were like how on earth do you adapt lord of the rings because tolkien's prose is really dense and and they bloody did it they bloody did it um and the other point about the extended editions is that i think it was the first time that you could really sense how much love went into it. And <clears> one of the things that I came away from with the extended editions was not just the kind of beautiful extended featurettes on how much craft and dedication went into every part of that film, but also the commentaries where <clears> the actors clearly just got on so well. I think they all still have their weird little fellowship tattoos. Um, yeah. And it's like, I don't really know many other films where it's like, and I think that did come across as so genuine, the way that they really did become bonded through this experience and being all eyes on them. I mean, it's hard to try and explain to people, but Orlando Bloom ha hadn't been in anything before. <laughs> he, mm. People mainly went, oh, what, that guy from that episode of Midsummer Murders? Um, <laughs> and then, it, you know, that every a lot of them just went stratospheric since then oh here's a fun story that that it attests to how genuine their friendship is uh a few years ago uh my wonderful friend zara who is hilarious zany zaz you must follow her on twitter and instagram uh she was in partick tesco um in glasgow and everyone will know the partick tesco if you know anything about glasgow um and it was new year's obviously everyone was trying to get in and and get their carry out carry out before uh, tesco's closed and she thought, gosh, that guy really looks like Elijah Wood. And the thing is, it was. And he was with uh, <laughs> Billy Boyd and... Um, oh, God. Sam. <laughs> oh, uh, Sean Austin. No, not Sean no. Austin. My bad. Other one. Who's Billy Boyd's mate in... Um, um, in my head, all I'm thinking is Charlie from Lost. <laughs> Lost, Charlie from Lost. So sorry, yeah. dude. Um, excellent actor, much much appreciated. But they but they were all there, and I love the fact that Billy Boyd was like, "Come to Hogmanay," and Elijah Wood, and their friend went, "Yes, absolutely." And this was, I say, a couple of years ago. Like, they are still very much friends. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. And I think it's not surprising that Lindsay Ellis was drawn to film criticism through this. I also think. Her Hobbit series is phenomenal, and I think it's one of my favourite pieces of film criticism ever. And it's kind of a, 
it's bittersweet considering you know the real deal of kind of movie making and <clears throat> rights and oh, I don't want to speak too much about it because I think it's such an excellent piece and I think the way that it turns is basically I'm just not going to spoil it I, th- I think I think I keep coming back to the fact that it wasn't like a geeky thing like it was it was an epic you know and then everyone could get on board and it was family friendly like it was what mild peril um mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and uh yeah like just just all of it like and and the weird bits that we still quote from it you know the the, the memes ed the memes that persist <laughs> from it mm. you wouldn't think that like really cur- like i i do not one does not simply tire of lord of the rings memes <laughs> you know like <laughs> stunning yeah that was one of the things that i think was most striking about it rewatching them was how well the movies survive being memed into oblivion yeah because there are cases where like a movie just becomes so such a kind of like a pop culture punchline or reference that you can't help but think about those sort of things when you're watching it and particularly fellowship which i think gets the lion's share of um all the memes um like watching it just thinking like oh it was always just kind of like oh yeah that thing from the internet but then immediately getting drawn back into the story and the characters and also it's a real testament to the quality of the movie that it did survive it does survive the hobbit movies like those movies were such um a colossal disappointment considering you know it's the same mostly the same creative people involved and like it had like some you there was so much excitement for it for it to come out and just be such a real kind of like damn squib it was such a like watching those three movies they just feel like so of a piece and just feel like so singular that even having sat through you know close to eight hours of extremely disappointing (laughs) prequels um i just kind of like sit down and think oh yeah i can ignore all of that stuff because this is this is the good stuff yeah i think i think the funny thing is that the fellowship is so and 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 i mean sorry fellowship two towers and return of the king are so adored and whether that's from Mm. a deep nostalgia or i don't know it's because I don't think any... I think people were really disappointed by The Hobbit, but it wasn't, like, a kind of... From what I can remember, I might be wrong, but it wasn't, like, a raging anger. It was just a real, like, we're not angry, we're just disappointed. Because yeah. we knew that they could do it. We knew they were capable of it. And in terms of what happened with The Hobbit, it's a whole... I mean, it's a whole thing, but obviously Lindsay Ellis covered beautifully. Um, but I think you're right that it's amazing that the Lord of the Rings franchise survived being mean to death and I think it's because it comes from a place of love and it is a similar Mm. it's because it's what all binds us together and it's what we in terms of what we recognise and Mm. it's not kind of it's hard to find like a mean or snarky it, it just has such strong archetypes that we can latch onto for memes so it's not yeah. it's not like I look at a meme that features Galadriel or you know, I, I see the um Ian Holm as as Bilbo, like, why shouldn't I put the claw hair clip on my on my lips? You know, that doesn't <laughs> I don't think that's really out of date and irrelevant, 
like there's a reason that it's a classic there's a reason that it persists and it actually has like stellar reaction gif material in it still (laughs) yeah i think um also one of the things that i think has made it age particularly well and that really but also makes it feel so of of a time and so like unlike a lot of the stuff that gets made now is like there is such a thorough earnestness to them yeah like Like, in the performances and this was mocked at the time you know there was that advert for when i think return of the king was being shown on television where they took sam no frodo saying to sam i'm glad you're here with me and then put under like that song secret lover Mm -hmm. and just kind of like really amping up that all the gags about the hobbits being gay and things like that and like obviously there's some homoeroticism in those movies that's undeniable Mm -hmm. but i think it's kind of like the 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 just the like i say the earnestness uh behind it and just like the the closeness of those characters you do get a real sense that these are all people who just really love each other and you know kind of like just doesn't feel like something that happens a lot in sort of blockbusters these days like so much particularly over the last sort of 10 years as the marvel model has kind of become pre predominant um like the reflexive snarkiness and then couching any uh, genuine emotion in a joke um approach to filmmaking on that sort of scale like just feels totally anathema to those movies which are so much about just like in a lot of ways just like people talking about their feelings like one of the things i thought was really interesting in rewatching them is like there's a there's relatively little like expositional dialogue in those movies most of the conversations that people are having are particularly when it comes to the hobbits are just about how scared they are yes <laughs> um and i think that is one of the things that's also really refreshing as well and also makes you care about those characters because they're not just like constantly explaining the world to you they just kind of think eh, you'll you'll follow along because you like these characters and you want to be carried away um in the story they're experiencing you know and and also like i think the benefit of fantasy where you have all these characters who are naturally living in a world where magic and stuff happens is you kind of just assume everyone already knows a lot of stuff as opposed to i feel like you know with the marvel stuff you're so often having normal people put into extreme situations encountering stuff they've never seen before so you have to all explain it all and dialogue has to get heavily expositional whereas in in the lord of the rings films it really is just like so much of it is the characters just talking to each other and getting to know each other and you really do feel as if particularly in fellowship the relationships between them build really naturally like um the fact that you go from legolas and gimli just like reflexively hating each other because dwarves and elves hate each other um when they first meet in that movie to at the start of the two towers like legolas pointing a um an arrow at Eamor for threatening Gimli, like, you do feel like that is a natural progression that they would be able to get to that point so quickly because you have felt that warmth and that um, companionship grow in a really palpable way over the course of that first movie. Totally. It's such a pure, possibly the purest example of the hero's journey, um, Mm. which comes across in those deeply relatable emotions. And there and there are tentative moments where you're like, I don't think they're going to do this, um, mm. and it's the very kind of 
naive and heroic notion of like, look, it just needs doing. I'll go. And everyone yeah. like, oh, can't let a hobbit go on his own. And and the kind of the bonds that then get forged because they all agree something needs to be done, and they're brought together by this kind of boldness, and to turn it into a noble mission, not a reckless one, is still really affecting. And I think that's why it's such an incredible film to watch when you are in your teens, because I think it manages mm. to be a coming of age film without explicitly being rooted in a teenage sense of place or time, but it is kind of a, it's, it's, it's Frodo's hero journey and the way that he does sort of age. Cause there is this sense of Hobbiton and the Shire being this idyllic childlike rural place. And then mm. there is this, you know, it's the fate of the world on these little shoulders and big feet. Um, mm. And I think it's hard not to, I think it's because the narcissism of, of teenagedom, it's hard not to project yourself onto absolutely everything. But it was so formative for me in this kind of, like you say, 9-11 had happened. And this was a film that was being released into the world a couple of months after that happened, but had not been created with that in mind. So there was this extra level of significance. And I think we needed something heroic and we needed something um, in the English speaking world. Sorry, I should specify of something that didn't shy away from how scary things were. Mm. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I'd like. Obviously, the way that those movies were produced were, you know, they put out the first one. The success of that allowed them to kind of do all the reshoots and reshape the second and third ones. Um, so they were these kind of like living documents. So really, the first one's the only one that isn't really affected by 9-11 and I feel like the second and third ones were kind of shaped by it a little bit so they kind of lean into that a little more which I think is why in the second uh sorry in the third one you have like uh Pippin talking to Gandalf and they're like they're on the edge of the assault on uh Minas Tirith and you know Pippin's talking about being how about how afraid he is and talking about you know, facing down overwhelming darkness and a lot of the theme of the movies kind of becomes you know, facing down a terrifying existential threat, but still doing it anyway, because that's the right thing to do. Um, which does feel, you know, saying it now, when you're kind of like talking about, you know, kind of like the war on terror feels kind of gross because obviously that ends up getting wrapped up in loads of stuff about Islamophobia. And, you know, certainly in terms, you know, there's lots of things to be said about Tolkien, obviously, having a, you know, the way that he wrote about the orcs, very kind of like negative things going on under the surface as there is with a lot of kind of like fantasy that's written from a Western perspective. But like the, that does kind of like fit in with the feeling that I think a lot of people had at the time. A lot of people were confronting the fact that this horrible, you know, kind of like mass death event had occurred and that the entire world had seen it and just being kind of forced to think about the way in which, you know, kind of like the world had shifted in a major way and the world had fundamentally become a lot darker. But but also I think that also ties back to, and I know like Tolkien has, he denied in his lifetime that the book was, you know, him kind of trying to process his experiences during World War One, And, you know, obviously like that's, you know, he has every right to say that he was the author and everything like that. But I think it's kind of like hard to read those books with that knowledge in mind and not think 
that the story of kind of like people coming from this charming rural idyllic you know kind of very small town England background and then having to go out to face war whilst being kind of like young and unprepared for it it's hard not to see kind of like parallels there with like what it must have been like as a young man to leave home to go and kind of like see friends get kind of like just torn apart you know in in a field in France yeah for sure it's I think it's pretty difficult because I didn't feel the pressure to separate art from artist until I was much older and Mm -hmm. understood more about Tolkien as a man and I think I was really happy at my childlike position of things because that was still my understanding of the world like I really got into the beauty of Elvish and all of the songs that he wrote like the fact that you know this sort of passion maybe obsession of the linguistics Mm -hmm. of uh, of, uh, Middle-earth and you know that you know way before Game of Thrones kids we had you know Elvish and all and all of these different languages um, even before Star Trek really so there was something quite exciting and that became kind of a a shorthand for the geeky level of how into Lord of the Rings you were (laughs) like it's it's kind of cool to know about uh, the fight training, but less cool to start learning Elvish. You know, there was a line. Um, <laughs> and I think that's the difficult legacy that we are left with because it's very hard to be living in a world of systemic injustice and have someone say, oh, I didn't mean it that way. Looking at you, JK. <clears throat> you know, and be like, yeah, but it still is though, isn't it? You know, racism, Islamophobia, anti-Semitism. You don't need to consciously do it to do it. That's the whole point. Ugh. And it's hard to kind of segue from that, but it's difficult. Like, it's striking now to think of how painfully white the franchise is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You can have pointy ears, but you have to have pale skin. Like, there's no two ways about it. Yeah, yeah, it's a deeply unfortunate thing. Again, it, it, this is something that's kind of rife in a lot of fantasy and the success of the original Lord of the Rings books kind of propagated that a lot, which is why, you know, you end up with like people like Ursula Gwynn having to make um, Earthsea and things like that. She'd be like, yeah, we need to uh, kind of correct this. <laughs> yeah. we, need to, we need to try and present a different image of fantasy, which isn't just uh, a lot of white people like roaming around a fantasy land and kind of like laying waste to various mystical races that have bare unfortunate um, resemblances to various ethnic stereotypes. Yep. Uh, in terms of the kind of like broader kind of like culture around Lord of the Rings or like the fandom of it, were there any kind of like elements of it that you remember like having really forceful conversations with people about? Like the, the reason I ask this is that I have a very strong memory after watching the two towers of just like insisting to everyone that Aragorn should not get together with uh, Arwen and instead should get together with Eowyn. Like I don't have, I'm not someone who generally ships in um, fiction, but that was the, that was one where I was just like, no, they should get together. They're the right, they're the, they're the real one true pairing of this whole thing. Yes. It's bullshit that he's going with the, uh, with the elf. Um, I remember getting into a lot of, 
very heated discussions about that where even though I knew that you know the books they get together and all this sort of stuff, you know Arwen and and um Aragorn get together in the books and all this sort of stuff I just still kind of felt like no like they're the ones that are perfect for each other do, do you have any kind of memories of particular elements of it that you were like extremely passionate about I totally agree with you like that was not you know there was zero tension in Aragorn and Arwen's relationship it was like it's literally just the external circumstances keeping us apart and I found that really difficult I think even then because it was like but it's just too perfect and there wasn't a, like there was zero chemistry between Viggo Mortensen and Liv Tyler which is quite tricky but I think it gets to a point where you are in pretty privilege and the bubble for so long you forget how to actually emote <laughs> because it was just like they just kind of moon and eat at each other the whole time. You know, they've just got this yeah. kind of weird blank stare and it's like, oh, that's what, okay. Whereas, you know, back in the world of, uh, of humans, it like the longing and the yearning and, and how much more interesting and in, like invest worthy that was. Um, I actually can't remember in what, I think I read all of the books in pretty quick succession after watching The Fellowship. So I, again, I sort of knew what was going to happen. But I think there was also that, tension of like well how close to the books are they going to go um <clears throat> and i don't think it was like they were going to outright kind of flip over any kind of plot or character tables but you know it's like they're going to find a way to make sure that that happens but with a bit more you know and i think it was essentially like you get a different one yay which is a bit like oh. <laughs> um I'm trying to think like I'm not sure whether I got into too much like toe to toe other than the usual Aragorn's better. Right. Yeah. yeah. Legolas. Aragorn's a real man. Legolas is a pretty boy. There was a lot of that going on. Um, but I remember getting so deep into kind of the humorous fan fiction, like particularly what that particularly tapped into the homoeroticism that I think every teenage girl just found simultaneously hilarious and quite erotic all at once. We didn't really understand the significance of this. And yet all of us now are queer. Um, but I think, was her name Clothinda? I can't remember. But there was a, an achingly funny fan fiction that was, the premise was essentially all of the fellowship were gay they're all too in love with each other and crushing on each other and that was just getting in the way of the mission um <laughs> which, which was kind of adorable because it wasn't there was nothing homophobic about it it was just we're actually scintillated and titillated by this homoeroticism what happens if we bring it to the surface and i think that was also you know trying to find some sort of queer representation and so kind of making it for ourselves um so yeah, maybe um, Arwen and Galadriel should have ended up together. Just saying. Yeah, I can't think of much. I think because I still, I, I didn't feel like it was a property that was mine. You know, I mm. think maybe if I'd read the books first, I'd have felt differently and felt a bit more equipped to kind of argue. Um, mm. But there are definitely like there are definitely things that I'm like I would have done differently. This makes more sense. This doesn't make as much sense. Um, but I think it's hard not to be a teen and watch it and feel like you want to go, like your personal mascot is the person whose unrequited love remains unrequited. <laughs> I think the idea of like, oh, they get together and they're a couple, it's hard to get on board with that. <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, 
the other thing I think that I was very passionate about at the time and now looking back I'm like no you're wrong that was the stupid thing to think was like I was very very annoyed that they didn't have the scouring of the Shire in at the end which for people who are unfamiliar with the books is like after they defeat Sauron the hobbits go home but Saruman's there and he's laid waste to the Shire and they have to like lead a rebellion of hobbits to over uh, overthrow him and in the book I always really loved that because it was like this like last hurrah for them and they get to be heroes to the people of their home their you know their hometown essentially and in watching it now I was like oh no it's way better that they don't have that in there because there is just something so in keeping with the way in which the films are really about small acts of heroism and about or, or like quiet acts of, of bravery you know the fact that they, they're, they're kind of stealing themselves and they're going to do it and it's all about stories and all this sort of thing and then going home and just being everything just going back to normal that just feels like so more fitting in a way that they just go back to living their lives and no one knows that they saved the world and I think that there's just something so much kind of like sweeter and more apt about that as like a quiet ending because you know for all of the epic battles and everything you know that that happens in those movies you know like Battle of Helm's Deep and all that sort of stuff like so much of the the appeal of those movies then and now is about the relationships between those characters and the small little moments between them as they're on their journey and I feel like a, a small quiet um ending to their story just feels more right completely it's this lovely combination of the epic and the small the kind of almost insurmountableness of the situation and yet the quite quiet and internal courage that it takes to meet it and I agree with you I think this is again a tribute to Peter Jackson and Fran Walsh's adaptation in that they understand how to honour the book but make it a film in and of itself mm. and I think that protected it from an awful lot of criticism because there was enough of them honouring the story without trying to fit absolutely everything in because they also know how a film works and that you know it was a sense of we, we've had enough we're full so we'll end this episode as we end all our episodes of Shot First Shot Recommends which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you the listeners will enjoy as well Emily what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week a spy movie it's mm. a... which one <laughs> oh, I... oh now I have to pick one. Oh no um <coughs> A spy movie is uh, ridiculous fun. It is from Stephanie Koenig of the uh, Brian Jordan Alvarez, aka Wondrous Life of Caleb Gallo, um, kind of crew of motley actors, writers, editors. They're just an, a horribly talented bunch in LA, um, and I enjoy their content immensely. Um, and a spy movie is the latest feature length offering from them for free on YouTube God bless him I hope AdSense uh, rewards them for their I mean I cannot this film is so fucking silly Ed it's like naked gun for queer millennials it's really really great fun like it's it, it's a total spoof and I didn't realise how much I needed to watch it and I think everyone is in need of a really 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 good silly belly laugh right now um, 
content warning, there is chat about uh, viruses and vaccines, but it's so silly, it actually alleviated some of my COVID stress. So I cannot recommend a spy movie. Cool. I am going to recommend a movie I watched yesterday as part of a little bit of 2021 catch-up, but, you know, trying to catch up on some of the most acclaimed movies of the year that I missed, um, either because I couldn't catch them in a theatre or... Uh, because theatres weren't open uh, for a long part, large part of the year, um, and it is uh, listening to Kenny G, which is a documentary by uh, Penny Lane, who's a wonderful documentary filmmaker, um, and it's released as part of um, Music Box, I think it's called, which is this kind of like anthology series that The Ringer is doing with HBO Max and of uh, music documentaries and. It is basically an exploration of why people hate Kenny G so much. And as someone who only knew Kenny G as a punchline for many years, and as someone who, and and in more recent years, as kind of like a meme and someone who would occasionally show up, like collaborating with people like Katy Perry and um, The Weeknd in a way that always seemed like weird and ironic, um, I found it to be genuinely very enlightening you know to 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 get a sense of just how big kenny g was in like the the 80s and 90s when his his brand of of smooth jazz became kind of ubiquitous and um the movie is kind of split between on the one hand various critics um of kenny g trying to explain the their um dislike for his music and the other half being like Kenny G himself talking about his life and his work and his process and the crazy things that have happened to him over the course of his, his career, including one of his songs becoming um, basically the song that shops play in China when it's time to close. So like everyone in China really knows his song Going Home, <laughs> um, which is a wonderful little strange detail of his life. And I think the juxtaposition between those halves is really fun because on the one hand, the critics are like making i think very good points about why exactly people you know kind of like take against him and then kenny g himself is just like a really pleasant man who seems very happy with how much success he's had and also kind of seems delighted that he's still relevant relevant enough that people hate him so um oh. vociferously and i think that penny lane does a great job of uh, balancing those two halves and kind of offering insight into Kenny G without kind of totally giving into the critics, but also not kind of taking the stance of like, actually Kenny G's music is really good. Like it's kind of agnostic on the quality of his music. It's more interested in him as a cultural product. And I think the movie does a, a really great job with that. Uh, so as I say, it's on HBO Max over here. I'm Hopefully it'll be available somewhere in the UK at some point, you know, so like Sky will pick it up or something. Is really fascinating, particularly if, like me, you have like zero grounding in uh, Kenny G lore, and so I'll kind of kind of come to it with fresh eyes and fresh ears. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, Spotify, all the user places, raters, reviewers, and recommend it to your friends. It's the best way to help us grow our audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We're back next time with something entirely different. Until then, it's goodbye from me, and it's goodbye from me.